With 80 plus episodes in the vault and more than $3 billion in total compensation increases received by the Secrets Village, KP and PR are still dropping jewels. Secrets continues to validate that you are not crazy with the challenges faced in trying to reach and exceed your career aspirations. A listener describes Secrets as helping to pinpoint areas I need to develop in conversations I never knew I needed to hear. And season five will definitely not disappoint as they continue to deliver secrets on how to advocate for yourself, how to become a better ally, and how to increase your market value by building generational wealth. Your hosts, Keith Powell and Ricky Robinson, have paid their dues to reach the top of corporate America, and they want to share their stories with you to transform your journey. And this groundbreaking podcast challenges you, as well as corporate America, to be better and do better. KP and PR will bring you more tips and tricks on how to advance your career. So fill up those cups and welcome to season five. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Secrets. Hey, KP, brother, what is happening, man? What's going on in your world? Hey, what's happening, PR? It's good to be with you again. I've been reflecting on that last episode we did about toxic work environments and mm. all that static that particularly that we as Black men face when trying to make it in this world. You know what I'm talking about? You know, and but it's also made me thankful for having wonderful brothers like you in my life to provide support because that's really important and we need that. And I also want to give a shout out to our sister, Sister Queen, Teresa Robinson, for recently pulling together a group of Black men, including me and you, Ricky, to serve as a support system for each other. And, I, you know, just every day, there is something in that message queue that just kind of shouting out words of encouragement. And I think that's really important for us as Black men, because we don't do that a lot for each other. Yeah, no, absolutely. And if, and if y'all don't know Teresa Robinson, not, no, look, she's not related. Okay, now that is my sister. She has a fabulous last name. Okay, but we're not related. If you don't know who she is, you really, really need to get to know her. I mean, go back and listen to episode 25 when we sat down with Teresa. She brought that heat, like so much fire, and she brings it every single day. Like if you just follow her on LinkedIn, on other social media. When I tell you this is what it's supposed to be like when you're finding your voice, when you're actually out there putting in that work for the community, that's what she's doing. And I agree that that group that Teresa pulled together has been like just so inspiring. And hopefully, just hopefully, we'll be able to get some of them brothers together for a secrets conversation soon because the struggle is real out here, right? Uh, We need more folks out there raising the voices of Black men and telling our stories. And today we have a guest who is and has been doing just that. Our brother Taru Brooks is with us today. Yeah, and I've known I've known Taru for almost 20 years now. And I can I can say that he's truly a member of the Secrets family. Taru introduced us and all y'all out there to D. John Jackson last year, who we had on episode 47. And last year, D. John and Taru collaborated on the award-winning documentary, What About Me?, which explores the unheard and untold stories of Black men and boys in America. Taru also just recently became our publicist and has helped us line up some hot-fire guests for season five. So bringing more heat as we usually do. And Ricky, I'm going to let you put a little shine, a little shine on Taru, because, you know, I've known him too long, so I may be spilling too much tea, you know, at the end of the day. So I'm going to let you do a little bit of his official bio and share that with our listeners. 
Oh yeah, no. So so I got you. So so this is going to be easy, right? But Taru, you know, he builds himself as a public relations and event planning, entertainment, marketing, and lifestyle architect. I mean, this is really like a, a real life Heyman over here, right? <laughs> okay. He's worked with some of the biggest names in music, sports, cinema, politics, and the arts. And he also brings a long history of philanthropic service and community outreach to diverse audiences across the United States and overseas. After graduating from Texas Southern, True worked for the A. Philip Randolph Institute. He also worked with Senator Carol Mosley Braun and BET before starting his own firm, Taylor and Brooks. This brother has planned events for presidents, kings, celebrities, and corporations. He is seriously the real deal. Taru Brooks, welcome to the podcast, my brother. Hello, guys. How y'all doing today? We're good. Thanks for being on the show. Welcome. Uh, welcome. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. So, hey, you guys, uh, in today's episode, we'll talk with Taru about his story and his career journey. We'll explore why raising the voices of Black men is so important for all of us. We will provide some receipts on issues Black men face in the workplace, and we'll close out with secrets from Taru on how to find your voice and why it's important to share your stories. This is going to be fun today. going to be fun today. So, Taru, we always like to start out by just letting our guests get to know who you are a little bit, some of your stories, so they just can find some connection points with you. So, tell us, who is Taru? How did you grow up? Where did you grow up? What was your family life like? A little bit about college and, and some of your kind of career steps that, that you had along the way. Okay. Well, I was born and raised in Gary, Indiana. Yes, home of the Jacksons, because I get that all the time. I'm the oldest. I have four brothers. You know, went to public schools, had a great upbringing, uh, grew up in a neighborhood where there were mostly senior citizens. And as life would have it, they really, really created and developed an amazing base for me. Those lessons learned as a child uh, still are my companion today. I used to tap dance as a kid, you know, spoke French, learned how to waltz, you know, all that good stuff that you wouldn't think a brother would do from from Gary, Indiana. Well, when I grew up, I thought I was going to be an attorney. But I realized early on that in school that my interest and desire of my creative gene kicked in and I went with that. And so my creative juices is how I uh, sustained this career of 27 years as an entrepreneur. You went to Texas Southern. What was that like going to HBCU and, and then kind of stepping out of that into your career? How did that all start? So I went there because, well, let me back up. So I actually started at Indiana State University. Then I transferred to Texas Southern. Going to HBCU was cool. However, it wasn't uh, very different from me of how I grew up because I grew up in a black city. So I went to all black schools my entire life. So that level of family, level of nurturing and care and support was there consistently. So that has been my overall experience in education. You know, even today, my third grade teacher, I still talk to her today. So it's, it's that kind of connectivity. 
While in school, I had opportunity to work on the March on Washington uh, 30th anniversary commemorative march. I was one of 10 youth, along with Ben Jealous, who's a former president of the NACP. We all interned together. And uh, that was a very, uh, wow, how do I say, very, very challenging experience to have worked with people like Coretta Scott King, Jesse Jackson, Walter Fonroy, all these iconic people that you read about as a child. Now you're working with them. That was one of my first lessons in learning how the world worked. And it was very challenging on many levels. But as they say in Louisiana, I got my understanding. And so I took what I could from that experience and had opportunity to work with Senator Carol Mosey Braun from Illinois, writing and doing research, focus a lot on healthcare and education issues. And that experience elevated my knowledge base of how the country worked from the political side. So that level of exposure on top of the civil rights exposure really empowered me in ways that I had no idea at the time. After that experience with Carol Mosey Brown's office, I had an opportunity to work with the Special Projects for Syndication Division for BET, where they created documentaries. And I had the opportunity to work on three of the documentaries. A Tribute to Black Music Legends was the first, and we got an Emmy nomination. The second one was Booking It Back to School Special. And the third was the Levine Music School Gala. After working with BT for those that time frame to complete those projects, I went out on my own to become an entrepreneur. Yeah. Hey, look, I mean, so first off, like I want to go back to the tap dancing, right? So so, <laughs> so now you know you can't say something and think I ain't gonna follow up on that, right? The reason I want to follow up on it is because what I know of you is you've always been someone who is not afraid to like buck the system, someone who's not afraid to kind of venture out on your own and do something. And again, I know growing up in Gary, Indiana and the Jacksons and that dancing and you tap dancing and, you know, all of that type of stuff, just trying something new, you know, was just probably not the most popular thing at, at times in terms of the other kids, especially if you're growing up in a black neighborhood, right? Because, you know, everybody going to get their clown on some kind of way, right? But what I wanted to say to you, though, the reason I bring that up is you've had like just some some really cool gigs out of college within politics and media as you uh, begin to speak to. But you pretty much, like you said, been working for yourself like your entire career. How did you actually come to that decision? What have been some of the lessons you've learned like along the way? Because again, that's working for yourself is not the traditional way here, right? We're saying, hey, go get this job at the big corporation, stay there as long as you can, retire. <laughs> you know, so but that hasn't been your your story. And I and I take it back again to the tap dancing and some of the other things. You've always been someone who hasn't been afraid to bet on yourself. So talk about that. So as I shared, my neighbors were my grandparents' age. And so because we were such a communal neighborhood, you know, we would always be supportive of our senior citizens, right? So Reverend Laurie, who was a pastor of a church in Gary, Indiana, engaged me about cutting his lawn because his lawn care people, I guess, weren't doing the job. And so he asked my mom if I could cut his lawn. And so my mother talked to me about it and I, and I agreed to do it. And so I began to cut his lawn and got paid for it, right? 
I think that sparked the onset of entrepreneurship, not knowing it fully at that time, but it definitely opened my mind to that level of creative way of earning money, you know? So you mentioned this tap dancing. So let me clarify something with that. So I tap dance for a long time. <laughs> now don't tap no. dance your way. Don't tap dance your way out this damn question. No, 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 no. Because see, that was a, a real lesson in that for me. So I remember I started in like the third, second or third grade. So when I got to high school, my mom had uh, bought me these tap shoes in the ninth grade. Back then, I think the shoes were, I don't know what, 150, 200 bucks. I don't know what they were, but they were pretty expensive back then. And she bought these shoes for me, but didn't realize that I no longer wanted to tap dance. And she could not believe it. And my why is that you're right. It wasn't popular at that age range for me in Gary, Indiana. But then I realized after I stopped tap dancing, doing something that I loved, I realized later that the same people who had opinions about it was like, man, why'd you stop tap dancing? You know, you were so good, blah, 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 right? So I thought to myself, I said, wait a minute. I let somebody influence me with their limited information and insecurities on something I love doing. I stopped doing it. Well, tough reality, but lesson learned. So today, if I want to go play with green monkeys on Tuesday, that's what I'm doing. I don't care what anybody think or feel about it. So I don't view it as a bad thing. I view it as a learning experience. So yay for my tap dancing, you know? Yeah, no, that is just like commendable, you know, to me, because I, I, I can tell you I was the kid that I was good in sports, but I really like science, right? I had my science kit. You know, I'm trying to like make a volcano. I'm trying to, you know, do that stuff. But I always like, I just the entertainment, you know, side of things has always been something that, intrigued me from watching Sammy Davis Jr. to Savion Glover to Gregory Hines, you know what I'm saying? Like all of those things was just something. So I have this vision that someone talked you out of doing something that you were great, you know, in. And I know the Taru that I know now, that ain't happening. <laughs> you know? Not at all. And it's funny, you, you mentioned those tap dancing legends. I had the opportunity to meet them all. And in addition to them, Dulé Hill, the actor, he well, he started out in tap dancing as well, but he's an actor as well. He and I was on the same trip in South Africa years ago where he tap danced in a special theater festival that was going on in South Africa years ago. So tap dancing, I stopped doing it, but it's still around me, you know? Okay. Yeah. Now we appreciate that. Yeah. Now, as far as this this desire to be an entrepreneur, well, it wasn't a goal of mine. While working at BET, we had this like a staff meeting, if you will. And basically, Bob Johnson was like, hey, I hear all this complaining or whatever, but, you know, this is my company. If you don't like it, leave. And I was like, wow, that, that makes sense. So I called my mom and I asked her, I said, how much money do I have in my savings account? And so she told me. And she said, what, you about to buy something? I was like, no, I think I'm about to quit my job. She was like, oh, really? I'm like, yeah. I said, well, what do you think? I said, how do you feel about that? She said, well, I feel fine. She said, you're young, single, no kids, no dogs, no cat. You can do whatever you want to do. And I was like, really? You yeah, was, <laughs> was like, like I, thought yeah. gonna, I thought she was going to be my voice of reason. I, <laughs> hey, I sure did, right? And uh, I said, okay, okay. She said, well, baby, the worst case scenario, and then my heart fell on the floor. I didn't know what she was going to say. And she said, well, the worst case scenario, you just have to get another job. 
I'm like, that's it? Well, everybody works. All right, cool. So I resigned. And I didn't know what I was going to do. I went to uh, Oakland to visit my cousin, Jared, and stayed out there about a week hanging out. So on my return trip back to D.C., I'm flying close to the pilot, right? And so this older gentleman named James Ferguson, a former football player, then he ran a nonprofit called the National Coalition on Black Voter Participation back then, but now it's civic participation. So I got his attention. I said, excuse me, sir, I'm sitting by the window. So he looks at me and says, how does a young man like you get to sit in first class? So I sat down and I looked at him and I said, this is going to be a long flight for you. And we talked the whole five hours nonstop. And you didn't have like uh, back then, I ain't trying to tell you age, but you didn't have, we didn't have like no streaming service, no music or no. No wireless headphones you could just put on. It's nah. a hostage crisis. There's a real <laughs> hostage crisis going on. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, back then, yeah, the, somebody's sure. batteries would have went dead. You know what I'm saying? Like, you- Sure, sure. <laughs> well, you know, he provided opportunity. I ended up volunteering for an event, a fundraising event for the organization. For him, and long story short, the lead event planner was not well or whatever, and I was able to step in and do more of the work to a successful event. He hit me up the next day and said, hey, I need you to come by my office. So I went by there. So he gave me a check. And I was like, whoa, what is this for? He said, you did a lot of hard work. We appreciate it. Here's two more business cards. I want you to call them because they want you to do their events. I was like, what? So fast forward, that kind of began the path of the event planning for me. Now, fast forward all up to the, to this year, James and I have been friends ever since. And unfortunately, he, about a couple of months ago, he actually just passed away. And I was able to go a, a week and a half before he transitioned to spend a few days with them, you know. And we talked, we laughed, we cried, we reminisced. And, you know, that was a hell of an experience for me to have, you know. Things are coming full circle. That's how the entrepreneurship kicked in and... From there, given my exposure to entertainment, politics, and the civil rights, I was afforded an opportunity in the 11th hour to plan one of the inaugural balls for President Clinton, the African-American inaugural ball at Sequoia in D.C. And that took it to a whole nother space with you know, Najee performing, Howard Hewitt, Angela Stribling hosting. It was just an amazing time. We did mention those presidents, y'all. So there you go. <laughs> the quote unquote first black president, Phil Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> y'all wrong for that. I never agree with that, but I, I don't know why we did that. I do not know why we did that. Well, because he because he because because we, we thought he was safe to invite to the barbecue. That's, that's right. That's, that's what right. it was. He you played the saxophone. He got right. <laughs> And like big oh. booties, like big booties. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I ain't gonna touch that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shoot. So true. I mean, obviously, working in all of these industries, they are all fraught with just a lot of stuff, right? Media, entertainment, politics. There's always something going on. And I have to imagine, especially as a Black man working in that space, there's a lot to deal with, potentially, and a lot going on. Can you just talk about, as a Black man, what it's like? weaving in and out of some of those 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 spaces for you. Sure. So 
There are a couple of things that I'll share. So one of the life lessons I learned, I was a little frustrated with the lack of mentorship from other black men. Right. And I didn't understand it early on. I won't say who, but one morning I was having breakfast across the street from my office at the uh, St. Regis. Now, mind you, I'm like 26 years old. And this gentleman sees me there and he says, oh, interesting to see you here. Business must be good. I was like, oh, well, yeah, it is good. Have a good day, right? So fast forward, I see him a couple of weeks later, and now it's cocktail hour. So I'm there for happy hour. But I had thought about the comment that he made, and I kind of unpacked it a little bit. And so I was a bit taken aback by it. So fast forward, I see him again, and he began to offer his uh, perspective again. So I cut him off, and I just told him, I said, hey, I'm not going nowhere. I'm half your age, your junior. I work for myself, and I make more money than you. Now you have a good evening. And so I realized when people have these corporate titles, while they sound great, titles does not equate to power. And that was the lesson I had to learn. And in a lot of cases, these particular African-American men had these titles, but no power, but but just wouldn't have the ability to uh, talk about it. You know, instead of being distant, they didn't talk about it. So there was no under, no real understanding. So once I figured it out, I began to not put as much of my energy into looking for a quote unquote mentor, if you will. So that was all from on a personal standpoint. But, you know, some of the behind the scenes stuff that people don't understand, or I should say can be a challenge when bringing people together for a good cause, while it is a good cause, there's always some behind the scene craziness, you know, people not showing up on time. And, you know, then you have those kind of problems, people canceling at the last minute, people not getting compensated on the back end, you know, and being the middle guy, you you get put in the middle of that a lot of times. And that was very stressful for someone who was very naive to all of this adult world behavior. So yeah, no, there are always things that could go wrong. The best thing is, is for the public not to know about it. Now behind the scenes crazy, but the public should not know that something's wrong. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. We're talking like that family business stuff, right? Like, like, look, <laughs> we understand like all of our family members got their issues and this, that, the other. And you know, it's like if you having this event and you have dignitaries coming, you know, you might have to pull your brother to the side of your sister and be like, look, now you know what you do, okay? You need to get here on time. You need to do this. This is my brand. All of these types of things, like the stories that you're telling, Taru, this is no different than corporate America. This is really it. Like, this is why we need the mentorship. This is why we need people to sponsor. But I can't sponsor you. I can't sign up for you if this shit behind the scenes that you're talking about starts to impact you like the business, you know, side of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well the, well, the reality is the event planning world was dominated by rich white women, to be honest with you. So it was very rare to see a young black man get into all of this, you know. So I just, again, took some of my innate gifts and applied them. And so I realized I was working in my gift I went to GW, George Washington University. They had this certification for for event planners, right? So after about five years in business, I decided to get certified. So I'm in the first class. I was, okay, this is boring. Second class, I'm not learning a thing. 
Now, mind you, I'd already played events for the president of the United States. I've done all these national events. So they were very, very, very basic for me. And so I realized that I had kind of superseded what they were trying to offer. And so I said to myself, if I don't learn something in this next class, I'm out of here. Because I was afraid to apply their math equation to my problem, if you will. I didn't learn anything else. So I told her I wouldn't be coming back. She said, well, you won't be able to get your money back. I said, no, this was the best money I ever spent. I have clarity. Thank you. (laughs) And and validation and validation, (laughs) you know, at the end of the day. Hey, look, so look, I I really appreciate the, uh, the candor, you know, here. And what it's telling me is honestly is no matter the industry, like seriously, being a brother, is often a struggle. Like there is so many struggles that we can't even talk about sometimes. But being in the industry that you're in, I know there have been some funny stories and harrowing moments, you know, as well. I mean, especially given some of the things you, uh, you've mentioned, you don't have to name names, okay? Like now, behind the scenes, when we ain't uh, uh, taping, I'm going to get them names, right? But you have to share a couple of crazy stories for our listeners if you can. Well, so this was after the event. I'm sitting in the lobby of a hotel in New Orleans with a client, a female client, and we're sitting talking, and some of her sorority sisters showed up, and they all got together, and I kind of slid on back with my own cocktail and let them, you know, talk and engage. Well, when the bill came out, they brought the bill to me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. So I had two drinks, right? That bill was short of $2,000, right? I looked at the bill. I looked at them. So as a man, you want to be the guy to be chivalrous and do this, right? But I'm in my 20s. Like, like what, what is this, right? So I sucked it up and paid it, right? Well, that will ever happen to me again. Was you talking under your breath? Were you were you cussing under your breath? You know when you do was, something when you do look, something you don't really want to do it. You be like uh, like Fred Flintstone, like when he used to be cussing in the cartoons. You're like frick him, frack him, frick him. No, I, no, I was just shocked though. I'm like, how did I get myself in this situation, right? So now what I will do if that happens again? Well, as it has happened again, those kind of scenarios. What I'll do, I'll tell the waiter, I say, hey, let's do a round of drinks for the ladies. And I'll take care of that. I'm signing. I'm done. So I don't give up my ability to be a gentleman and chivalrous. And I'm also not going to be be pimped out either. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They're no trying to drink yeah. your wallet. Yeah. Hey. <laughs> hey. Ain't no captains. Ain't no captains. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, you know, another behind the scene event, I can't say what event, but as I share with you, a lot of times there are, there are a lot of things that can go wrong. And this one particular event, the artists were not properly taken care of on site with their balance, right? And so it became a thing. So I was able to convince them to still perform with the promise of providing their resources the following morning. So it's those kind of things that you have to be real careful about, you know, because most times in stuff like that, People don't want a check from you. They want cash, right? Because once they're gone, they're gone, you know? And let's just be real now. You know, I don't know who this person that you're talking about just yet, but let's just talk about my own situation, right? If I'm supposed to do an engagement for somebody and that money ain't right, like, 
it's going to be hard to kind of give you the product. Like, it's going to be hard for me to act like wimpy over here. Like, I'm going to gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger today. Like, no, let's same time, man. You're going to have to <laughs> turn this over at the same time, you know? Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy stuff, though, man. It's, it's crazy stuff, you know? It's always fun. I know, I know you got lots of adventures out there. We'll talk about that later over cocktail. Okay. <laughs> Another cocktail, I should say. Yes. <laughs> Ricky, Ricky's sipping like he in the Sahara right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Keith. Over, right. over there clowning. I'm parched, y'all. I'm a little parched, okay? <laughs> so let's pivot because one of the, the theme of kind of this podcast is just kind of about raising the voices of Black men and hearing their stories and those types of things. And you've had a lot of passion around this, particularly in the last few years. And as we talked about earlier, you did a documentary last year with uh, D. John Jackson called What About Me? And you're also continuing to do other projects to kind of spotlight Black excellence. So why did you get involved with this? Why did you think this was so important for America and others to kind of hear the voices of Black men and boys? And then what's next on the horizon for you? Sure. So the documentary came much later. I actually started by doing a calendar about Black men called When I Grow Up, I Want to Be. And it was sold in Borders and Barnes and Nobles. It featured men of color based on their careers. And it talked about where they're from, their occupations, some of their hobbies. And we gave historical facts of achievements of African-American men in years past. I did two of two of those calendars. And with this documentary, it wasn't necessarily a goal of mine. However, I just got tired of hearing all the limited and negative views of us in the media. If you turn on the news, we don't either athletes or entertainers or criminals. And I just thought that was so unfair and and this was too limiting because we are so much more than just that. And so I was actually in Memphis to meet D. John Jackson and something had just occurred, some, some racial foolishness occurred and I was just lit up and I decided that I was going to do a documentary and I told him about it. And he said, hey, well, I'm in. Count me in. And so I called my other producer, Daryl Pitts, out of Chicago. And once I got him on board, that's how we got together to create the documentary. I had the title already, already in queue. What about me? Because once you say it, it makes it real. I think while I can't change what's been put out there, I can definitely add to the narrative about us. And now it becomes a resource. So the documentary has been featured nationally in syndication. It remains on Amazon Prime. And it's been published everywhere from Rolling Out Magazine, Heart and Soul Magazine, Forbes, you know, Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So it's, it's, it's making its rounds. With that, we're going to be going through colleges, doing more screenings and Q&As about it. There have been corporations who have viewed it and had Q&As from it, and it's been very impactful to hear more mature men become very vulnerable and sharing their experiences in corporate America, all the microaggressions and things along those lines. Yeah, I mean, look, just the title alone, that was something that really 
like struck me in that conversation with D. John Jackson. I mean, it's just been a pleasure. It's been like a gift to be able to be included in that discussion. And we just love the work that you're doing, that you've done with that, you know, so far. And Teru, I just have a question. As you were making that documentary, what was impactful for you or was it like, themes or things that came out of that or a moment where you're just, that resonated with you as you were doing that? Sure. So a couple of things stuck out for me. One is when I really realized that Black men are viewed primarily for what they can provide. That still leaves me speechless. No matter how kind you are, how loving you are, how thoughtful, engaging, supportive, you mess around and don't provide at the level that's expected of you? No grace. No grace. No grace. I, I know this personally. We, we've talked yeah. about this stuff, Teru. Yes. With all the trauma that we've endured since slavery, all of the things that we all know about being stripped down culturally by white America doing slavery, and those things have perpetuated itself over time, all that trauma, but no help. With all that trauma and no healing, what do you really reasonably think we can provide? Is my question. I also found that there were quite a few women that felt some kind of way that the documentary was not about women, that it was, or that it was just about African American males, right? One of the things that I'm trying to process is this notion African American women have become superb at advocating for themselves. They are superb at advocating with one another. We even support them. What I'm finding a lot of times, if something's going on that's for us, if they sometimes internalize it, it's like we're doing something against them. Everything's not going to be about them, you know? And I'm just trying to figure out a way to coexist without it being an unnecessary level of discomfort. Because the truth of the matter is, if we start working on ourselves to perfect and heal and all these great things, we just become better fathers, better husbands, better uncles, better children, whatever. So it's not against anybody, it's for everybody. That's kind of um, some of the things that I got out of it. Another one, it would be it's rare that a black man gets to sit and people ask some questions about them. Most times people just don't care. And so to have them in a space of vulnerability to share their perspectives was a very, very powerful space to be in. I think it left people empowered, encouraged, and overall, the feedback from the documentary has, has been great. People are wanting a quote-unquote part two or sequel, what have you. I'm not going to do that. However, I am going to do a series more of documentaries about the Black male. And the next one's about Black fathers. Mm, man, I'm excited about this, man. I mean, I just, everything that you said, I mean, I, I find myself like sitting here like that meme where, you know, they, they have Michael Jackson in the movie theater from Thriller when he was eating the popcorn. Like, I feel like I'm doing that as you're talking about the work that you've done in the past or what you have on the horizon. So, I mean, I have so many questions, you know, about some of that stuff. But in all, I just want to give you, like, this invitation for support. Like, whatever, you know, we can do, Keith and I, the Secrets Village, all of that stuff. These are stories that need to be told. But as we mentioned at the top of the podcast... 
we started working, we've had the pleasure of being able to be associated with Taru as well. And we'll give you the opportunity to put us on blast, you know, in a minute. But before we digress, before we get into that, can we just step back for a minute and tell our listeners, you know, what services do you provide to your clients? And besides knowing KP for a while, what was intriguing about working with us? And what do you see for the future of Secrets? As our friend, our brother, our hype man, you know, our voice of reason, and most importantly, like our publicist, you know, like maybe you could just take a moment and just talk about those things. Sure. Well, what you guys have created is food for the soul. I think it's a much needed space and opportunity for people to be vulnerable and share their lived experiences. That is appealing to me out of the gate because most of us don't have a place to actually share whatever is going on with us. Because I do believe that what you guys are doing, you're saving people's careers, you're, you're empowering better careers, you are empowering people to go beyond what they could even see. You know, anytime someone is doing something for the greater good of our community, I'm for it. I'm with it. And the thoughtfulness that you guys had in creating this is very, very, very powerful. I think that it's going to empower a lot of our young African-Americans to go into the corporate world or entrepreneur world and take it by storm because they're going to be equipped with things. So these small roadblocks and pitfalls will not befall them because they'll see it ahead and know how to maneuver. That's powerful. You guys are having an impact far greater than what I think you guys intended on the front end, because I know you guys would be just good guys and good hearts. And with that, this expertise that you guys have collaborated to collaborated to create secrets podcast it's powerful. I personally feel that it could be a series on television because more people need to see it. More people need to have these conversations. It's not enough to say, I did not know. It's just not enough. And I think when people are held accountable or just engaged in other ways, because there's different ways to communicate with people. Everyone's not going to get it on our three. You have to go to aisle seven for some. And I think what you guys are offering are opportunities for people to be heard at every level and opportunities for for people to receive and have the opportunity to impact their decision making and how they move forward and treating their co-workers or bosses and colleagues, what have you. You know, it's a powerful thing that you guys are doing. And so it is a pleasure to find publications that will allow opportunity to share your story as to why you created it, the impact that it's had on people and where you're going to go with it. Well, you know, we guys, we're going to kick off this HBCU tour and talk to these these college kids. That is going to empower them to approach their job hunting very differently. I mean, that alone changes the game for most of our culture. But again, I do think this is definitely worthy of being a series on television. It's definitely worth it. All right, now somebody don't put it in the universe. (laughs) It's in the universe. It's in the universe now. But to real quick, and before Key jumps into the last question, what services do you provide to your clients and what can you do for someone who's out there listening and trying to figure out how to take their business to the next level? 
Sure. Well, as I said, I started as an event planner. While I don't do as many events as I did years past, I still do them, but they're more high end, more thoughtful, more intentional and very creative because I like to utilize all my resources to tell a story, to give you a total experience, you know, and to help raise awareness to whatever your cause or purpose of your event. I do PR, basically securing media exposure to help build your brand. And producing. I'm open to doing other documentaries around certain topics. I'm doing one now for the National Black MBA Association, which will be premiered at their conference at the end of September in Atlanta. That's kind of my sweet spot there. I could do other stuff, but those are my my, my areas that I focus on. No, I appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, just the jack of, jack of all trades. And, and again, this, this is what you do. This is your warehouse. And I know it's second nature to you. But let me tell you all, ever since we started working with Taru, shit changed. <laughs> we'll be honest with you, you know, Taru, like this is his warehouse. And sometimes you have to get people around you who really know how to do that type of stuff. So we appreciate you for that, Taru. Oh, it's total pleasure. Total pleasure. And the last last question for you, and it's probably a lot to reminisce about and think about as you reflect, what's been one of your most proudest career moments? That is a very tough question, and, and I'm going to tell you why. There's a book that's coming out this fall that I'm being published in, and in this book, I had to write a chapter about my life. And while writing is not difficult for me, it was very challenging to write about my life Because I don't really focus on the quote unquote successes of what I've been able to experience. I view my life like a pot of gumbo. All my lived experiences have been simmering to perfection and I'm the root. And so picking one thing over the other, I've not had those thoughts in that type of way. I didn't. However, I have lived experiences that still stick with me. You know, one thing was get I had a compliment from Lynn Whitfield years ago when uh, she was uh, a presenter for the ESPY Awards. So I'm, I'm in my barber chair getting my little shape up, what have you. And my barber said, hey, your phone's going up. It's Lynn Whitfield. So I got the phone. I said, hello. She says, hello. She said, hey, I want you to come with me to the ESPY Awards. I said, OK, cool. When? She's like, tonight. I was like, tonight. So jump out the barber chair, get home, shower, change, put tuxedo on, pack the bag at the airport, got to her home. We had a pre-cocktail party where I met Sam Jackson, you know, Star Jones, Tanya Jackson and Jack K. Harry and a few other folk. And I'm in this room in her home and I'm just like, wow. And so I asked her, I said, what made you invite me at the last minute and think that I would be ready to even do something like this? So she looked at me and she grabbed my face and she said, baby, you always ready. And so I took away from that. <laughs> yeah, Tarun, Tarun, you, I, I you still smile. Ready, <laughs> well, you know, it's all about your appearance, you know, yeah. being well-groomed, being available, having the resources and know-how to show up. Showing up is that's the rub right there. You have to show up for yourself. And I think for us as African-American men, we have to start advocating for ourselves. We have to support each other because until we do, we'll never be humanized. Mm, mm, mm. Look, y'all, I mean, 
this is it right here. So look, Atura, we appreciate your story, your journey. You've been able to share that. We sincerely appreciate that. But this is the part of the show where we start to kind of make sure that we let folks know that you're not crazy, right? Like, so today we're going to share receipts on the experiences of Black men in the workplace, right? And I know that there are a ton of things that we could talk about, you know, here, but we're going to take our time really quick here and talk about four receipts. So receipt number one, Keith, why don't you hit us with that one? Yeah. So according to a Brookings Institute study conducted last year, Black men have the highest unemployment rates of any race or gender group and the lowest labor participation and employment rates among men. And Black men are out of work almost at a two-to-one ratio compared to white men with incarceration accounting for a third of that gap. So here we are. This is one of the struggles. This is one of the struggles of being a Black man. If you're not incarcerated, there's still other factors that are contributing to you not being in the workforce. And that's hard to overcome. When Taru was talking about being a provider, you can't be a provider if you ain't got no job or you sitting in jail. Right. Or there's some other things, some some shit rooted in some other shit like they don't have nothing to do with you. Like I don't I mean, personally, I don't remember standing in line waiting to be born and picking out my parents or picking out my melatonin tone. Like I like I, I don't remember standing in that line, <laughs> you know, so it's like to think about coming out the womb and you already have a bit of a target, you know, on you. This is real. That receipt points that out. And receipt number two, the Brooklyn study also shows that Black men experience less upward and more downward mobility over time relative to their parents than do any other race, gender group in the U.S., a finding that is driven by their weak employment and earnings outcomes relative to these other groups. I mean, that's deep in itself, but I'm going to go just a little bit deeper. The median income of a white man is $40,000 versus $20,000 for a Black man. And Black men have not seen any change in that gap since, dig this, 1950, okay? And the study concludes that these disparities are the products of a long history and ongoing reality of what we call systemic racism. It is. 1950. I mean, that's older than our mamas. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is. That's crazy. That's crazy. And receipt number three, Fortune Magazine did an article entitled, What's Keeping Black Men Out of the Executive Suite? They interviewed dozens of Black men in corporate America and found that some common themes around their experiences. Many of these men, for example, spoke of having to constantly calibrate their personal persona, right? They have to thriving to appear focused at the office, but not too aggressive, Hungry, but not threatening. Well-dressed, but not too showy. Talented, but not too damn talented. Right? Nearly all had experienced conversations shutting down or being shut out when race of matters of race were brought up. So if you're trying to talk about race and a Black man tries to interject, they're trying to shut that shit down as fast as they can at the end of the day. And nearly all felt a profound sense of concern for the generation of Black men to come, fearing that if they didn't do something personally to develop that talent, that the share of African-Americans in business would only dwindle. Again, this is a heavy burden to carry. And it also points to some of the work that Turu is doing. I mean, he is carrying that burden by that sense of concern for the next generation and wanting to put our voices out there because 
we know if we're not going to do it, nobody else is going to step up and do it for us at the end of the day. Yeah, Keith, I mean, that, that receipt is just kind of, I would almost even say triggering, right? Because you just think about all of the stuff that you got going on, whether that's external to work in your own household, in your community. And then when you get to work, you got to make sure you kind of navigate, no puns intended here, but as Taru was talking about him and D. John Jackson, this tightrope when you get into corporate America, right? Like there's all of these different pitfalls that you can fall into. And again, we got to do all of this work, but our employers, the, you know, the people who we work with, they ain't got to do nothing. <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Like they don't have to do anything there. It's, it's like, like we used to say in the hood, this is AOB. This is all on baby. I got to do everything. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh man. So look, Finally, receipt number four here, and to just build off that uh, point, Thomas Timothy Hart wrote a LinkedIn article about how corporate America is afraid of Black men, and as a result, Black men have to fit a certain prototype. He states that the thing about being the only Black person in the office is that it comes with job responsibility and physiosocial responsibility, because many times we are the lone intimate contact our white colleagues have with the black man in their lives. Like this is, they haven't had it, you know, before. So it's kind of new to them. They're kind of tiptoeing around things a little bit here. And as a result, the extent of these interactions will be largely determined by their comfort level and acceptance. Again, we, we've talked about fragility plenty of times, but this is exactly explaining that. And the need for comfort leads to only a certain type of Black man entering and being successful in corporate America. Again, we're talking about that prototype. And it also says that Black men who work in corporate America fit a particular profile, meaning educated, articulate, cultured, and non-threatening is probably the biggest piece there. When these characteristics are on full display, they contribute to the comfort level of white people. But in the end, it totally neglects to see the full diaspora of black men. I mean, bam. I mean, Keith Theroux, I mean, you guys can speak on that, you know, probably even more, you know, as we think about the work again, Theroux, that you've been doing and even, you know, Keith, the topics and some of the individuals that we've had on the show. Yeah, no doubt. I'm sure you heard some of this while you were doing that documentary and some of your other work, Theroux. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. As we always do, I got a brief for just a second. Those receipts got me going, so I'm a little hot over here. <laughs> you know what you got to say? Ooh, yeah. So I got to do that for just a second. But anyway, we're going to close out our show with Secrets from Taru. He's going to provide three secrets on how Black men can find their voices and why it's important for us to share our stories. So Taru, what advice would you give that young or older brother sitting out there trying to find their way and how to have some influence on what's going on in the world. Yeah. Well, one of the things I think is critical is we have to perfect something. You know, you have to have some added value out here in the world. You have to perfect something because it's competitive out here and people want the best. So whatever it is that you're trying to do, be really good at it. At something. Because you, you have to have something people to work with, right? Next thing is to advocate for yourself. Do not be afraid to engage others and advocate for yourself. You are your best voice. 
Final thing is don't be afraid to communicate. Communication slash document. Those things are critical. Yeah. You know what, Teru? I I appreciate those secrets. I mean, although they may come across as simple, they are not. Like these are things that have plagued us in the community and especially with Black men here when you're talking about perfect something, right? Because you're saying you got to be good. You can't just be average at everything. You have to really find like your niche and and, and be like a, a master of a trade or something, you know, there. And just the fact that you're talking about even speaking up, like how hard is that? You know what I mean? Like how hard is speaking up when you got to worry about not being too aggressive or whatever it is, like all of those things. I mean, I think this is important when you even talk about finding your voice. As simple as it sounds, this takes work. This definitely takes work. Let me add something to here because I think this this is very important, something that I realized in the last few years. I wonder why are we constantly auditioning for life, for our own lives? We are here emulating other people oftentimes. We are out here doing things that are popular, doing things that our friends like. But the reality is until you start doing what's in your heart and what, you know, that feeds your soul. That's why people out here, they're still empty. They're out here buying these designers, doing all these big things, but it's not even the desires of their heart. That's why they're not fulfilled. And that's why they're constantly out here auditioning, you know. But once you start doing things that are important to you and have meaning value to you, Life will look so different. Mm-mm-mm. Boy, I'm trying to tell you, Teru, man, we, we 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 love it. You know, keep tap dancing. That's what we say. Don't give up tap. Don't stop tap dancing. Don't stop that shit, you know? So look, Teru, brother, you've been dropping just so many gems today, right? And I just appreciate the simplicity of this conversation. I mean, this is like we over here sitting on the couch, just rapping, you know, about stuff. So Secrets Village, we ain't playing with y'all in season five. This is what it's going to be like, and it's just going to keep getting better. So we sincerely appreciate you being with us today, Taru. How can your new Secrets Village, because you win it now, you you can't quit us now. How can they get in contact with you if they want to use your services? Sure. You can reach me on, with, with my name on all social media platforms, Taru Brooks on LinkedIn, Taru on Instagram, Taru Brooks on Facebook, or you can email me at taru.brooks at yahoo.com. Awesome. And everybody, y'all reach out to this, brother. I'm telling you that. And you can find more resources on the secrets and receipts um, that we shared today by going to our website, secrets.com, and looking in the show notes for this episode. We'll have Taru's information in there, too. Got it. And Teru, I would also like to just extend my gratitude to you for being on Secrets today. I mean, we really appreciate you being so real and authentic and willing to share your journey with us on Secrets. This is why you are in the Secrets Village. Our Secrets Village continues to grow. And I'm just asking this, please. I don't want to make it sound like we're begging, but help your brothers out by writing a review on Apple. People are reading that. I can't tell you how much that's helping us out, but write that review on Apple or Spotify. Join our LinkedIn group. We got some amazing people on and folks just drop in and and make comments, you know, on certain articles that we have in there too. And just comment on any of our posts, whether it be on your favorite, you know, social media channels. Those comments help us and also set you up as Keith always likes to talk about, it sets you up to be a thought leader. So again, help your brothers out. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And also check out our merchandise. Go to the goods tab on our website and check out our latest gear. We're already always updating that uh, with some new designs and things like that. And you know that PR and I are locked in on getting you that coin at the end of the day. That's what this is all about. It's creating that generational wealth. And to date, we have tipped the scales at almost $4 million of total compensation increases. We've been able to help people negotiate over the last year and a half since we started Secrets. So that's what it's all about. So hit us up for coaching services, for training, give us a referral, whatever the case may be. Just help us out. And uh, we also want to thank, again, our listeners for, for, for listening. We want to thank Teru once again for being with us today. And if y'all don't know, Teru likes to partake in libations the same way that we do. So we are definitely going to get him on a few of our happy hours as well. And speaking of drinks, it's time to fill up uh, these cups because they are a little empty over here. I told y'all I was a little parched today. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're going to uh, go ahead and fill up these cups so we can create some more hot fire for y'all. So until the next time, everyone, thanks so much for listening to Secrets. And remember, when we share, you transform. Peace, everybody. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed yet another episode of Secrets. In fact, one listener said that with Secrets, I learn new, actionable information listening to KP and PR. I enjoy the balance of data with the testimony of real experience. And we hope you agree. If you are motivated and excited after listening to Keith and Ricky, please show these brothers some love. Subscribe and write a review on our podcast. And last, but certainly not least, elevate your professional game by signing up for our executive coaching services. Check us out at www.secrets.com to get more information about our secret services. Remember, when we share, you transform. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.